0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey friends, welcome to the Tennis Amigos podcast. My name is Andre and the whole crew is here. We have at Tennis Nation and at Bunch VTK, this is their... um, Twitter handles, you can follow them right now. Um, their real names are Owen and Vansh. How are you guys doing?
2: Good, 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 really good. Um, this nice to be back at the Tennis and Bagels headquarters with you both. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's pretty pretty good times right now. We're just trying to keep up with all the tennis going on. There's like four or five different events. You've got the year-end finals for both men's and women's, and you have the next-gen finals. You have a couple other tournaments. So it's a busy time and <laughs> wrapping up the end of the year
1: yeah so, it, it's a lot to follow but it's been fun to watch and looking forward yeah. to breaking down some of it
0: yeah and just a little note before we get into anything it's it's funny how like a couple i think a couple weeks ago or last week we made a me and owen we made a podcast and we we're just calling just how exhausted we were from watching tennis and just right after that we like paris was great and the ATP yeah, I, I, I watched almost really all of
1: paris like yeah yeah and which apparently i was, was not expecting to do yeah
0: Apparently, was really good. I think partially because one Medvedev plays really well at the end of the season, and he's great uh, indoors. And Djokovic is probably like kind of really tired of like not being the favorite anymore. So he just kind of like, let me just get back into winning.
2: Yeah, it was impressive because he had he had taken almost fifty days off, you know, after the U.S. Open, and you know, kind of just processing what happened in that U.S. Open final, and just kind of the the stress, and you could just feel it, kind of just as he played that final against Medvedev and the stress he was feeling because he was obviously here in Paris. He mentioned it for a mission, which was to get that clinch that seventh year and number one. Mm-hmm. And it was a stressful match at times against He'll Be her Hercatch. And it went to a third set tiebreaker. It was right down to the wire, seven five in the third set breaker. And you could just feel that emotion just, you know, just coming off. Uh just he he just felt so relieved. And it was such a big difference to see him play that semifinal where he was still feeling the pressure. It was tight at times and then played the final where he just looked so relaxed and just free of all that stress and burden Mm. and so just that contrast was pretty crazy and then he had to navigate like the first couple of rounds he was a bit rusty and he kind of just worked his way into form so it was nice to see a a really good rivalry you know developing between Djokovic and Medvedev and you know it's really it's it's a nice chapter in, in tennis and you know, we mm-hmm. hope we see them many more times play against each other because it's yeah. it's fascinating. The whole
1: rivalry just fascinates me. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> it's easy to forget as well that before this final, it had been almost two years since they played a good match because um, they played that Epic at the ATP Cup and they've played two major finals this year, but both of them have been pretty bad quality-wise. Like one player has been great mm-hmm. and the other one largely fails to show up. And so this final was like almost a makeup for those because i think both of them showed up medvedev had a pretty big lapse in the third set but but for the most part i thought both of them were firing uh almost the entire time so it's really fun to watch
0: it's kind of cool that to have a a rivalry between a guy who's 34 years old and a guy who's 25 right because and they're both are like pretty much at the peak of their their games at this moment djokovic it's it's a little bit of a Maybe, but like it, it's not far off. Like winning yeah. three grand slams in the same years, you can't consider that like twilight of your, of your the, career. Yeah, I the, guess.
1: the thing I've been thinking about Djokovic is like mentally, I think everything has come together for him. And so yeah. when he plays, like mentally, he's so he's totally peaking. And because of that, it makes it hard to tell if his game has declined at all. Because like he's in theory, there's no way he should be as good as he was in 2015, right? But then like you oh, watch him play yeah. and he like no one can get close to him. Like if, mm-hmm. if you watch him play at Wimbledon, no one was pushing him. Um, and so I think that mentality that he's developed has sort of papered over a lot of the areas of his game that might've declined slightly. So like, mm-hmm. I think his level is pretty close to his highest. Yeah, mm-hmm. I
2: would, I would agree. And I think, you know, he's really retooled also some of the parts of his game that, you know, he felt like he had to innovate a little bit, you know, in order to beat Medvedev and use some other tools because, you know, on in some of their matches and in, you know, in the U S open final and in other uh, areas, you know, they play so similar to each other in the sense they're both just balls from the baseline. They both can trade backhands all day. They've got really great, you know, all the, all the things that that are advantages for Djokovic against all the other opponents, you know, whether it be like consistency and court coverage and, you know, the backhands, the, the return and um, the serve and return, I guess, you know, the combo of, of them. And he's kind of had to come up with other ways now. Against Medvedev, who is who has no problem, you know, going in toe to toe with him in long, long exchanges and long, long rallies. So we saw a little bit of Djokovic's repertoire and and you know coming forward a lot, uh doing it with intent and purpose and finishing points. I think that was a big uh difference in the in the match overall, because you know, in that first set, you know, Medvedev was winning all the long rallies and all the rallies that were going over five shots, over nine shots, he was really the one kind of squeezing errors off Novak and you know even though Novak was pretty free and he was playing without any burden we saw a lot of times he was tossing his racket up and just catching it and you never really see that from Novak that was just a sign that he's you know he's he he might lose this match but he's 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 here and he's fighting with the he's going to fight with the right intent because you know that pressure is gone now from the world number from securing that ranking.
1: Mm-hmm. I also thought it really looks like he was having fun. Like I think a couple of the times when yeah. he tossed his racket, it was almost ironic. Um, And he was trying to be like, get a bit of a laugh. I th- I saw him smile mm-hmm. a few times and um, yeah, he, was he was applauding. He was applauding Medvedev's shots throughout, like maybe even more than he usually does. And he's already probably the player who does that the most, even in the first set on a really big point is three, all break point, And he had a drop shot and Medvedev kind of duped him with this perfect counter dropper that went for a winner. And even though Djokovic had just been broken and it ended up being the decisive break, he lost that mm-hmm. set. He just applauded, like didn't show any frustration at all. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, like you said, Vonch, it was clear that the pressure was totally gone in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah.
2: And then also, you know, he had his kids in the crowd with him and both his um, both his kids were there. That's the first time I've ever seen his daughter also in the crowd with, uh, you know, we, I've seen his son before in the crowd, but his daughter Tara was there as well and the whole family and he was just really enjoying the moment, just soaking it all in
0: so you yeah. can see to tell I think, um, Djokovic had a when when. first of all I want to point, point out two things one the, in, regarding the US Open like he definitely seemed relieved once he was over but it, it was a it was a relief of like a, from a burden in a sense like he, he was um, he was crying after that match right and even during and this time he, he was just like happy just like yay it's, like I did something and it's like it, it kind of felt like he finally broke one of the probably one of the biggest records ever like in tennis which was like the year end uh, by Pete Sampras like six six years of course Sampras did it in a row but mm-hmm. regardless uh and a very different uh comparison from from last year when uh, when he secured his number 1 ranking he pretty much tanked his his next match like it, it almost right. didn't didn't give a crap <laughs> he lost like 2 and 1 i think right to yeah. qualifiers since senega uh, yeah yeah it was brutal. It was, no it, yeah. it, was, it was really weird, and this year he secured his number one ranking and played a big final. and that's interesting, I guess, because probably the the idea was like, hey, um, now that I'm here, I might as well just break the tie against Rafa and win the 37th masters, right? It's like yeah. I mean, it's a different type of uh tournament, I guess, like he yeah. probably felt like he he had a little bit more energy as well, as you said, like he had like almost two months off off the tour. Um,
2: well yeah and i think he knows yeah. the importance of this rivalry that's developing with medvedev also you, yeah. know, you just want to just give him a clear edge and just give him another victory yeah. like that because yeah you now this has important bearings for the next couple of years you yeah. know these and guys he still ha- two has two the guys. 21
0: that he wants to make it before uh, he ends his career
2: yeah right yeah which, which makes me
0: think um once he well once if djokovic actually gets to 21 and the tie is 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 broken and neither rafa nor roger can actually win another grand slam after that like mm-hmm. spe- especially after long i think it's gonna be pretty clear whether rafa's gonna be winning more grand slams after mm-hmm. but um i wonder what he's gonna go after next like what records are left <laughs> yeah i think at the
1: the that point it's like just put everything as far out of reach you know like yeah. make these. Last as long as possible, like maybe I'm gonna if, um, win as
0: many 500 titles as I can, <laughs>
1: sure, or like try to get to 25 majors. Yeah. Like I think if yeah. Sampras had known that three goats were coming up in the generation after him, maybe he tries to get to 16 or 17. Um, maybe, yeah. but you know it's impossible to know at the time. Yeah. And now that Djokovic has, has seen that, like you know, records are being broken quickly. He probably wants to make his last for as long as he can. Maybe.
2: Yeah, I mean he's broken a lot of them now. You know, 37th Masters 1000. Uh, That's a record. He's obviously tied both of them in the number of majors. He's got the most top ten wins. He got his first, like he, you know, he has almost three hundred fifty weeks now at at number one. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, what's next? Maybe Steffi Graf's three hundred seventy seven. But it's like, you know, and then I think his priorities are pretty clear. He said he's going to play for his country and play uh, play the majors, Mm. Uh, really try to peak for those events. And you can see that within playing Davis Cup finals after Mm -hmm. the I guess gold medal the long year. And yeah, Yeah. the gold the gold medal in twenty. 24 we'll try I mean, to go for that even for him
1: that that's gonna be tough at 37
2: yeah. years old on clay That'd yeah i mean
1: but part clay. of me part of me just wants uh novak and rafa to m- make a last push there like battle it out one more
0: time like play for the gold medal and then just retire mm-hmm. that would be fun like imagine yeah. if they retire like in the least um likely tournament i would say like in yeah. in the olympics like that's the last tournament, in the olympics like who would ever have <laughs> foreseen that
1: yeah um right.
0: so something i really wanted to talk about was
1: um so Djokovic did a great job of serving and volleying in the mm-hmm. match yeah. against medvedev he did it 22 times and he won 19 of those points and after the match craig oshanesee atp strategy guru writes this article and this is how it starts and i'm quoting here you can't regularly serve and volley in today's game the statement above is worth reading again because it needs to be the last time you ever see it in print it's a myth. The death of servant Volley in our sport is pure misconception. And Novak Djokovic may as well have put the final nail in the coffin of this delusional fallacy once and for all in the Rolex Paris Masters final on Sunday. What do we think of that?
2: So, you know, I respect Craig. I, you know, I think he's a great analyst and he's, he's written some good articles. And he obviously was part of Team Djokovic, but I'm going to have to disagree with him there because I think, you know, I think it's not, it's definitely not a myth. I think it's used today, it's just used a bit differently. Then, you know, then it was maybe used in the eighties and nineties. And, you know, obviously, you know, we saw it a lot in this match. Like he said 22 times out of, I think th- I, this is a stat from Gil Gross I actually listened to his, his podcast. So he mentioned this, but he said that 39 times Djokovic tried to go for a serve and volley and 22 times he actually like the serve went in right. and he was winning like 19 of those points. And I think, you know, th- so almost 45% of the time he was using it as a tactic rather than as a bailout that we've seen him do sometimes when he's tired or he just doesn't have any more options in his game and you know it's not a secret that this is the way to exploit Medvedev's return position on especially on the deuce side i mean if you watch the 2019 us open final rafa did that plenty especially on the ad side he would take that angle away and he would cuz he you know he realized that this guy is such a wall from the baseline and you know mm-hmm. the only way this match can be won i think both of them realized it is at the net and obviously you know we we see servant warriors today but they don't have you can't. I don't think you can have the kind of success that you could in the 90s and 80s just with the string technology and the the court surface and the slower balls, slower courts. And you know you can't. I mean, the the furthest I've seen a pure servant volleyer go is like Misha Zverev in 2017 when he made the quarters. Or you know, occasionally Dustin Brown has played a couple of really good matches like that, just serving and volleying on grass. And you have like Maxime Cressy. You have some specialists out there, but in today's game, you know, you need an all round game and then you need that as sort of like a like a plan b or a plan c or just something you can use to um you know as part of your arsenal but it's not i definitely don't wouldn't say it's dead i think it's still it's still there it's just used differently uh, how about you
0: um, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah andre what ahead. are your thoughts oh yeah i was gonna say um definitely right i mean you can serve and volley as a style, I guess. It's a, it's too much of a risk to take um in today's game. Even if you're like, Riley Opelka or John Isner, who are probably a, the best servers out there, like in today's game, um, they, they, they're not gonna have, they, they don't have the success they, they have right now being servant volleyers. Like contrast them with a big servant volley who was pretty much the same archetype as them both. As Ivo Karlovic was pretty much always serving volleying. Um, he, he didn't have the same success as Opelka and Isner. Isner won a, a Masters 1000, uh, I think, in the 2000 and I don't remember. Um, mm-hmm. and Miami, yeah. yeah, and Miami, he wasn't Miami. serving volley like you know, he's he's, he's got a big one two punch, which is probably the new serving volley, if you will. Um, but you, you can only serve in volley if you if you have a clear mind that of like who's who are you playing against, like, um. What is the next shot going to be? It's it's a, it's a constructed point in your head that you're going to do. It, it's not like a Pete Samper style or um, bat rafter, which is you just serve in and is like rush into the net and you play amazing volleys all the time, which is basically what they used to do. And even if you do that, like, I mean, we had this discussion with Owen about Gregor Dimitrov. Like you're going to hit like plenty of like hot shots, but you're going to get passed so many times that you're probably going to lose the match. You cannot win the match yeah. by hitting hot shots all the time it's it's just not gonna happen so I think serve and volley um it, I think the key is regularly I think if we define regularly as in like yes you do it regularly like every depending on like the player and like it's you're you're a regular serve and volley you're you're not like David Ferrer who never does it because come on um but I mean if you're reg- by regularly you mean like every game you're gonna do it like three times Mm, I think that's a little bit difficult, honestly.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you both, and I think um I think you touched on the key to this, which is like it's the particular player that's doing it and who you're facing. Like Medvedev, um, I mean he he hits good returns, but they're not heavy returns, and they're down the middle, and so they're the kind that can be volleyed really easily. And I think also the fact that Djokovic was the one serving volleying. I think the key to executing this strategy successfully nowadays has a lot to do with how unexpected it is. Like if, um, if you don't expect them to come in, you're not going to try to place your return, like close to the lines, uh, the sidelines, you're going to try to put it deep, which is an ideal ball to volley off of, because it's going to be down the middle. Um, and I think, um, I think Djokovic with the game he has being so solid from the baseline, you don't really expect him to come to the net because it's not the thing he does best, um, And Medvedev being the style of returner that he is, even when this pattern started to become clear, it was hard for him to adjust. Um, And so I think Djokovic took advantage of all these conditions and he executed his volleys really well. I think one of the points he lost on the Serban volley was a clean pass on the third point of the match. I don't remember what the other two were, but um, I do think if he were to play Nadal or Team, who, although they also return from very deep, they hit returns that would be A lot heavier and therefore a lot harder to volley successfully or even if Djokovic were to play Medvedev again there's no guarantee that this would come off as well um and so I think and I agree with what you said Andre about regularly like I think if um like 20 times a match is a fair bit and he tried to do it almost double that many times but if you try to make it the core of your strategy there's there's just no way
0: and I mean you just switched the um I commented on uh uh, matt willis uh, tweet tweet he put out um and i think it's it, it really depends on the returner like switch returners and you, you get a completely different um case right it doesn't even have to be like it, like alcaraz who uh, returns pretty closely close to the baseline or murray um but like it, take returners that return deep like nadal and our team they hit the ball completely different from Medvedev. like they blast this ball like across and with so much spin and it's like so much uh power uh which is not really what mavedev does like mavedev is the king of placement not necessarily power or spin um it's normally pretty flat which makes it a little bit more um simpler i guess like it probably fits well with like the the volleying game like a, a heavy spinning ball to your like to, to to a volley that you're gonna play like it's, it's gonna be pretty difficult to control and even if you make a, a volley it's probably not going to be as good as you want it's probably not going to go as precisely as you want like onto the corners or whatever you want to place it um and again like guys today they're they're really fast so if you volley badly you're probably gonna get past next shot so yeah yeah, yeah and, and, and uh,
2: that's a good point you know that's the, the the thing too is that i think the execution has to be totally on point if you're going with a play like that especially even though Medvedev hits the ball f- uh, flat. I mean, he's so quick. He knows that he, re- he returns deep, so he knows he has more court to cover and track down the next shot. And that six foot six, you know, with those big strides and the way he's not even in position, sometimes he's able to counter attack and get those passing shots. And so Djokovic has to be really precise on some of those. And he, you know, he did give himself plenty of margin, but it's, you know, I think I, I think I agree. It's like it also depends on the returner and what kind of a ball is being sent back because You know, I mean, he does he does hit pretty flat, and Djokovic, uh, Djokovic used that perfectly. I just wonder if it'll work next time on a, you know, maybe on a faster court. And now Medvedev kind of knows it's it's coming, so it'll be interesting to see what Medvedev does to counter this. You know, is he going to move in a little bit and take those returns earlier? And I also think, you know, is he going to be able to come to the net a little bit more than what he's doing right now? Because obviously, we know Djokovic was twenty seven for thirty six at the net. And Medvedev is not nearly as comfortable when he you know, when he has to come up there and he's forced in. Um, he can use it well as a surprise tactic and net rush, but he's not comfortable coming in on his own terms. And he was 5 for 6 at the net. And there were opportunities I saw in this match where you know he would hit one really good approach or he would hit, he'd get a short ball, but he would just kind of retreat back and then kind of get trapped in no man's land and then the rally just mm-hmm. sort of starts on its own. And he, he can still win those long rallies. You know? He can still win without doing this it's just yeah you know is this going to be a new it something can, different yeah. that we see in you can
0: expose yeah. a weakness for sure yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: and, and, and vans that that kind of rally you mentioned i think um the match point was a pretty good example of that because medvedev he was on top of that rally for 10-15 shots like he hit two inside out backhands that had djokovic sliding hit a couple good forehands down the line i think any one of those really could have been an approach shot, but he decided to stay back. And credit to Djokovic because his defense was outstanding. But, you know, Djokovic ended up flipping the point on him and finishing with a winner. Um, and who knows, maybe if Medvedev had come in on like the fifth ball, uh, he that might have ended differently.
2: Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think that was evident is the, you know, the finishing power that both of them have in their forehands. Yeah. You know, I think Djokovic is, you know, even on a slower court, he has a little bit more safety and spin. And we talk about how Medvedev hits the all flat, I think conditions do play a little bit of a role. If the court is a little bit speedier, you know, he can get that extra zip through the court and that easier offense, especially off the serve plus one, you know, his serve wasn't nearly as effective as it was, let's say in the U S open final. I know Djokovic didn't have his best return day there either, but it's tough to win the match against Djokovic when you're winning only 58% of your points on your first serve. So, and um, you know, and then also the forehand, I think it did break down at times in the, you know, and Medvedev did go away a little bit for the last 10, 15 minutes of the match midway through the third set, but I think, you know, Novak was able to exploit that forehand in a way. I think I saw him mixing up a lot uh, the slice on the backhand and then kind of going to the inside-in forehand on some occasions and stretching Medvedev there and just kind of breaking the, the forehand whenever he had an opportunity to kind of hit through the court or come in behind it or create offense with it. Um, I think that's where you saw the crack in Medvedev, trying to finish those points um, against against Djokovic, whereas Djokovic was a little a little bit easier. To generate yeah
1: and i think um it was really great seeing how clear-headed tactically djokovic was because i think after the u.s open and after the first set of this match a lot of people were kind of saying like you know medvedev is the guy on hard court now he he's like a, even a slightly better version of djokovic like i saw people tweeting that mm-hmm. and at the time like that didn't seem like a terrible impression but then you know djokovic came back he fought um he won the second set by serving it out in this insane game. Like he had to save three break points. I think he served served and volleyed on all of them. And then when he finally got to set point, they played like a 20 shot rally and Medvedev finished it with a backhand winner down the line. It was just this push pull of the highest intensity and quality. And he served that out. And then he was by far the stronger player in the third set. Um, So I think it was a nice reaffirmation that, you know, he's still the guy he's the favorite at the Australian open. Um, He's still the one whose game has the fewest holes. Those long rallies aren't his; aren't quite his bread and butter anymore. Um, You know, Medvedev has more of a willingness to grind at this point in their careers, but uh, Djokovic can still find the solutions.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and you know, when he needed to grind, I think I think he did because I think you know, even in I know Novak still won the nine, still lost the nine plus shot battle and five to nine shots, but you know, even I, I think a lot of people are talking about the serving bullying and you know all of that, but I think also he won two really big points that were long rallies in the second set. To break mm. uh, when Medvedev was up 40-15 on his serve and they had a couple of really long rallies at Deuce and I think that took a, the wind out of the sails a little bit for Medvedev. Not too much because he did eventually get to break point in the last game of the second set where Djokovic kind of bundled a volley in the net and didn't get close enough but then he had the he had the right mindset and clear headedness to go again with the serve and volley and then he placed it perfectly. Mm. So I think you also have to be you also have, with that kind of a style and also when you're serving and volleying and when you're Mixing in these things as as a pattern trainer, you also have to be prepared, like to know that it might not work sometimes. Like prepare to be passed. You know, you might get passed, but it's like a it's like that mindset and just doing yeah. it again and again and under yeah. pressure. And yeah. I think Djokovic did that superbly. And when he had to grind, I think he was right there with Medvedev because he knew. You know, I think Djokovic holds Medvedev in such high regard. And you hear him talk about. You just see the mutual genuine respect they both have for each other and the jokes on Instagram and the comments and. It just kind of seems like it's it's actually really genuine. Like I think Mm -hmm. he really treats Medvedev or sees Medvedev as like his biggest rival. I think he even admitted afterwards that he's like, you know, he's my biggest rival right now, and it's up there with the big four. So, uh, you know, it'll be Mm -hmm. interesting to see if they do meet next time because it's four four since twenty nineteen, and they split major finals, and Mm -hmm. this was their best match since the ATP Cup for sure.
0: Yeah, definitely. I definitely want to see another australian open match between them like another final like a like a top five setter i think would be great to see and it has potential to be incredibly long as well like it, it depends on i guess jokovic's leg, legs at this point but um um it's not too far off from in terms of physicality than nadal used to give Djokovic. uh well they both used to give each other like on court um of course Djokovic is older now but i mean it could be it could be a really interesting match if um well if it if it becomes an epic which is i guess what we are all, always hope for in uh in the grand slam especially a yeah. yeah, big yeah. final against um probably the future of uh probably the future number one really and the guy who's gonna be a bit more dominant i guess like in the next five years or so um if not somebody comes comes along there's a, a bit younger like 18 years old like that we're not seeing in the challenger tour right now um but i don't know like i mean it, it would be interesting i guess yeah and,
1: and um yeah. And I totally agree that Medvedev has the potential to be very dominant on a hard court, more than he already is after Djokovic goes away. Um, I mean, because during this Paris Masters, Medvedev was kind of off for a couple of rounds. Like he, um, Gaston played him really tough um, and actually won the majority of the baseline points. And while Gaston was playing really well, this should never happen to Medvedev in that kind of matchup, whose game is just so much more complete. But then in the semifinals, he came up against the credibly accused of domestic violence guy who had won like 24 of 26 matches on hard court. Everyone was really talking him up. Medvedev just wiped the floor with him. It was six 6'2, two didn't take much more than an hour I think he was down break point in like one game. Um, But it was in, it was an absolute demolition. Mm-hmm. And so that was just a reminder that, you know, Djokovic is still the guy, but Medvedev is right there with him. He's not far mm-hmm. behind at all. Mm-hmm. And yeah. no one else is that close.
2: Totally agree. And I also think, you know, they've played a couple of matches that weren't close, but I think they had the potential to be, if it wasn't for a couple of points here and there, like at the second set of the U.S. Open final, you know, if Djokovic does manage to get that break, we don't know how that match might've panned out. But I think we would have seen a little bit more of a physical, a little bit more of a, a little bit of a closer match than what we, what we got a little bit more drama, but I, I agree. I think Medvedev is right there on the, on the, on the hard courts, especially, you know, the faster ones, especially indoors, especially you know, the two majors, he's gonna be right there. And you know, before long he could even be a big threat at Wimbledon. And he's already made some inroads on grass. So he's he's really had a stellar year really all around winning over 80% of his matches and he's you know the clear number two. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And um and at first one Djokovic made that comparison that, you know, this rivalry is like the ones I have with the big four guys. Um, At first I was like, I'm, I think he's exaggerating. And I think he still is a little bit, but what you mentioned Fonch with a lot of their matches being one-sided, I think that quality kind of reminds me a bit of Djokovic Nadal, where it's like, they know every time they take the court, they need to show up because if they don't show up, they will get destroyed. And that happened at the Australian open final. Then it happened in reverse at the U S open final. Um, And then when they both show up, you get these matches that absolutely blow your mind because both like they're both physically immense like they're making every ball they're defending like gods they're attacking really well and then you get matches like the french open semifinal or that atp cup match um or even the match we just got to a lesser extent um and it's really great to see because rivalries like this are as good as tennis gets so yeah mm-hmm.
2: absolutely yeah I, I guess we could move on and talk a little bit about the groups for the. Yeah, the, the I was finals. I was gonna
0: say like in, in terms of like hard court prowessness, and we still have another one coming up, and it could be interesting as a new venue as well. Like nobody has ever really seen like what turn is gonna look like or feel like for the players. So, what do you guys think? Do you think uh, Medvedev gets another shot of uh, revenge on Djokovic?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think you know I would love to see a kind of a one and two finale again to square things mm-hmm. off and, you know, they could meet in the semis or the finals. It really That's depends true. on who tops their group. Um, you know, I definitely think Djokovic uh, has the has the easier group, no doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's got Rublev and Sitsipas and Root in his group. Um, Sitsipas looks like he's playing with the, I mean, he's struggling a little bit with an injury, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how, how he does and whether he can win a match or, or not, because none of those three guys are, you know, should be too much of a threat based on current form. You know, Rublev has been quite off since the U.S. Open, and he just really looks like he needs an offseason. Rude has been good, and he's improving on hard courts, but he's not quite there at a level where he can really realistically challenge Djokovic uh, indoors um, yet. And then, yeah, Tsitsipas has the doubt with the injury. So, you know, I definitely see Djokovic coming out of that group, and I, I am not even sure who's going to be second in that group. With mm-hmm. the scenario i just mentioned you know maybe yannick sinner might end up stepping in and playing as an alternate mm-hmm. it just depends yeah. and then the other group i think is much more stacked because you have medvedev and you have uh you have horachek and berrettini you have all the tall guys who serve big and um you know have, have more weapons and dangerous on this uh on these indoor courts and then obviously the guy with the domestic abuse allegations um so you know i i, I realistically um think the winner will be one of the top three guys with Djokovic, Medvedev, and that guy. Yeah, uh, I'd be surprised if somebody else won this tournament.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree, and I kind of think um, I kind of like Medvedev's chances a bit better than Djokovic's, even though he's in the tougher group. Like Djokovic, mm. I think um, it's hard to imagine that he won't win this group, but I think after that he's going to get number two or number three in the semis, and then maybe the other one of them in the final. Um, and I think that um you know, one or both of them could take it to Djokovic and, um, you know, Djokovic like on form, he's the favorite here. He's won this tournament five times, but the fact that he hasn't won it since in six years now gives me pause. Um, cause a few years have gone by now where he really should have won and he didn't either by losing a close match or kind of failing to show up or, um, Mm -hmm. or both in the same week. And so because of that, I'm just kind of hesitant to predict that he'll win. And you know, it's Djokovic. He could v- v- very well prove me wrong, and I won't be surprised in the least, but just because he hasn't won it since 2015, I feel like Medvedev is slight favorite for me.
3: Yeah, yeah
2: I'd put him slightly ahead of Djokovic, just very slightly. Yeah,
0: yeah I would say yeah. so too. I think Medvedev also, having lost in Paris, like um, being young and still having a lot in the tank and being also defending champion of this tournament, um, I do think that he's going to look to win this tournament, right? Like, I mean, it's one of the areas in his game, he excels. like indoor hard courts, like it's, he likes that. So I feel like it's, he's not just going to be in this tournament to, you know, to end the season, but like he, he probably holds this tournament in high, in high regard. Uh, not that Djokovic doesn't, but at this time in, in his career, I guess there's more important things for yeah. him to care about. It, uh, it's almost like that tournament
1: has outlived its usefulness for him. Like there's, I mean, you know, Federer's won it six times, but at this point Djokovic has so many of the records that, Mm-hmm. breaking that is really not a necessity at all for his goat case um and i think yeah. he knows that so it's almost like you know winning it again for him would be great but it's just endorphins at this mm-hmm. point
0: yeah yeah, yeah. i do think it, it must be game. it must feel good to to know that you to play this tournament and play top guys and, and come out as the winner i think it must be interesting yeah. like just um it's it's a thing that of the moment i guess like you don't necessarily think of this tournament all year long until you're there and you're like oh my gosh this is it and i think um coming back to predictions i have a feeling that rude is gonna make it (laughs) into the into the semis like i I think Ruval is playing really weirdly right now and rude is a guy who's really confident i guess he's he's very solid and if he can bully Rublev enough, I think Rublev is just going to self-destruct and not entirely sure about Sisyphus's injury. Um, if he's healthy, probably him. Um, but yeah. And on the other group is, it's definitely like the, the death group, honestly.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, with those two guys were two and three coming around and, you know, Djokovic maybe, you know, like you said, it's not quite as important to him this tournament as a, once used to be and not having him won it six times, I think those guys will keep him young as well because he knows the importance of those rivalries and he knows, uh, you know, he knows he's going to have to face them many, many times, especially next year and who knows maybe the year after and uh, mm. you know, yeah, and you know, I think Rude might not be a, a bad pick to be honest because uh, you know, we don't know how webb is just really not been informed. He's really tailed off the last few months. Um, uh, you know, he didn't make the Cincinnati final, but. Um, and he beat Medvedev there when we all know what happened with the camera and stuff. And yeah, I mean that know, was an
1: amazing performance from. Revolver it was, yeah, it was. He was yeah. pretty good.
2: It was, and so. But since then, you know, it's just it's. He's really just not looked the same mentally, and he's tired physically and emotionally from a mm-hmm. long year. And uh, and yeah, yeah Sitsipas is, has those doubts, and so I, I think yeah. that could be a decent pick. Um, yeah. It for all we know, you know, it could be even Yannick Sinner. Who just steps yeah. in and plays yeah, two two matches, sure. and he beats Rublev and Rude. I'd give him the edge on an indoor hardcore mm-hmm. against everybody in that group except for Djokovic. So it's really tough to see who, tough to call who's going to be second. But yeah, you're I, saying, I mean, I
1: yeah. I agree to an extent. I think, um, I feel like on form, um, Rude could absolutely make it. I think, like you said, Tsetipas and Rublev are both mentally and physically cooked, and have been for a long time. Like Tsetipas, really hasn't played well going all the way back to paris um hasn't been the same since losing that two-set lead in the final um rublev it's it's been since um cincinnati and before then it's been since uh, monte carlo that he really played well and so i think um game-wise titipas is still the second best player in that group but mm-hmm. i don't expect him to play at his best i don't expect rublev to play at his best um So I think Rude could absolutely make it out of that group. Mm-hmm. Um, the other group really interests me because number two and number three, you would think would make it out easily. Um, I'll say first, I don't think Berrettini has a chance to make it out of this group, but her matches up really well with Medvedev. Um, he beat him at Wimbledon should have beaten him in Toronto, but um, you know, super tight match lost two tie breaks. Um, and I could see him matching up pretty well with that guy as well. Um, so I feel like it, it if he is a great week, and he played really well in Paris, um, he could get out of there with Medvedev.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he could, oh, yeah. 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 I'm
2: interested in Baratini a little bit because you know he hasn't looked the same to me since Wimbledon final either. <laughs> I mean, you know, he didn't make the U.S. Open quarters, and he did make he did he has won a few matches here and there, but he, he's also struggled with an injury, uh, you mm-hmm. know, at the end of the year, and he's uh, you know those matchups against Medvedev and that guy are very favorable for him. Um, you know he can definitely win sets, and he's he's gonna have the home crowd behind him. and uh, and he hasn't. uh, The only match I've seen him play, catch was in in the Wimbledon semis, where he won like ten games in a row. It was strange, but he played he played very well um, on grass in those conditions. But I'm interested to see who will do the better of Herkatch and um and Berrettini Berrettini because I think Hercatch matches better with those two than Berrettini does, but Berrettini might be able to get a win over Hercatch, so. It's kind of tough to call, but I still lean those two guys coming out of the group. And I think um Medvedev has a nice edge over that guy now. He's won five of their last six matches and yeah.
0: He, yeah he so your them, um your picks to get, get out of this group is Medvedev and uh yeah. Mr. Allegations, or yep. yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. I I do have the feeling that this is gonna happen too. I think we're gonna see a massive like wipeout from Medvedev as well in terms of uh uh and the German and I think it's gonna be another like six two six three, uh, but he's definitely like going to win against Harkarch and and Berrettini. I think it could be like closer matches. I'm not. I'm also not like at first when I see this group, I'm like maybe Berrettini is gonna be interesting. I think he could make it out. But, like thinking about thinking back about injury and, and everything, it could be tough, I guess, for him. And Hurkach, I'm just not sure if he's there uh, um, mentally. Uh, he played a match against Murray. He definitely like played well of course and murray was playing amazing as well but uh i do think that her catch if he has uh the same type of problem that he that he had like in wimbledon he can play badly for a long period of time yeah. and that can cost him the match really so yeah, yeah. The, the thing really with interesting to see is the court he's... speed yeah. because yes. um
2: you know i think the i think her catch uh, the one area of his game that. Needs the most improvement as a forehand wing. Yep. And mm-hmm. so, if, you know, if the court is faster, similar to Medvedev, I think he'll be able to get some easier offense and he loves to come forward, but he's great at the net and he's got a big first serve and he moves so well for his height uh, yep. and he covers covers the court well. He hits that really nice open stance backhand. He's got, he, he's nifty. He's awkward. He can come in with slices. He's got he's got a good uh, game plan as well. He's, he's got a good IQ and he's just seems like this really nice, mild-mannered guy. So, uh, yeah, I was yeah. just going to say. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I agree.
1: I was going to say the thing with Hercotch is that if the serve is not firing, he has a lot of trouble attacking um, because of that forehand. Um, and we really saw that against Djokovic. I was amazed that that match ended up being as close as it was. I, I was expecting another lopsided set in the third, but he really dug in. Um, but I do think with you know a couple of those stretchy long-limbed defenders in his group, if his, if his serve isn't going in, um, he's... And, you know, going for the lines with his forehand is not his style at all. You know, he misses, it's not powerful. Um, I think he could be in real trouble. Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, when I say that I don't think Berrettini has a chance to get out of the group, I think um, I'm not necessarily knocking his game. Um, You know, amazing serve, amazing forehand. And I think those are going to be great in these conditions. But, you know, you see a match like his loss to Alcaraz a couple of weeks Mm ago. um, And, you know, you just think, like, if that's Medvedev instead... um, and Berrettini is getting one break point against Alcaraz's serve. I just don't see any way that he can win. Um, kind of a similar situation with um with the other two if they're on their game. Although um, yeah, he'd probably be the favorite against Harkot. Um,
3: mm-hmm. so I
1: take part of that back.
0: Yeah. 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 So yeah, go ahead. What are you saying?
2: Oh yeah, no, I was just gonna say it should be an interesting ATP final. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah,
0: for sure. And what about the uh, probably the weirdest? Uh, scheduled tournament of the year the wta finals is starting on wednesday finishing on wednesday that's um, bizarre it's it probably the most awkward bizarre. uh timing although it probably works better for me because um sometimes I just don't like to be working on a Sunday. You know what I mean? So like if tournaments finishes regularly on Wednesdays, like nice. Uh-
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's true. And it's also in Guadalajara, which is a nice, nicer time zone for us. Normally exactly. you know, the, the, the finals yeah. is so hard for me to follow. I never get to watch it live because it's always in China. It's happening at 3am. Yeah. I'm not going to get up at 3am in November to watch it. So uh, honestly, but like, you know, if it's, but if it's like two, you know, it's only two or three hours ahead for us. So I, so i yeah. feel like it, it's good and it's like on a wednesday it's strange i, I get why they did it this year but it's and it's also they had to string a lot of things together at the last minute yeah to get this event on and it's nice like i, I really love the aesthetics of the tournament i love yeah. the the fans seem really into it the yeah. court surface is great like it's it, it's tough for the players playing on you know five thousand feet above sea level um they really have to adjust their game and to the conditions and the court is extremely bouncy and travels fast through the air, really speedy, but also the ball bounces really high. We've seen that with some of the matches so far. And the groups are pretty interesting. And, you know, you have a situation where, like, Annette Contevate has won four of the last seven tournaments, and she's, like, playing really, really well, you know, much above what I've seen from her at all in the last three years because she's really kind of been in that, um, you know, top 20 players, but really kind of like another Elise Martens. And she's really come out of that now, and she's going really big on her ground strokes and she's super, super confident and finishing points and just really looks like she could actually win this whole tournament.
1: Yeah, didn't so. face a break point against Krejcikova, who's the three seed. Um, and yeah, yeah I, um, I think the tennis has been quite good so far. Yesterday we got a really fun match between Pliskova and Muguruza um, that I tuned into midway through the third set. And um, Pliskova had a couple match points um, returning at 5-4 up. And Muguruza saved them both. And then in the next game, Pliskova was serving five ball, love 15. And it was one of those points where, um, you know, the server is dominating and like bossing uh, the returner back and forth. But then Muguruza defended everything. And then the first ball where she had time destroyed a backhand winner down the line. And that made it love 30. And at that point I was like, she's got this, you know, she's totally reversed the momentum. Um, But Pliskova really dug in and, uh, and ended up winning um, eight, six in the tiebreak um and so i thought that was quite a good quality match at the end um yeah. and then today um Sochary, it, was, it was
2: interesting also because like yeah. puskova has a 9-2 head-to-head now against
1: pugaruta and it's like which is huge yeah
2: which is which is massive
1: you know yeah two. and um yes speaking of another matchup that's starting to be lopsided um Sochary crushed uh ego today uh 6 um served remarkably well. She she has these performances where her first serve is just untouchable. Another one was against uh Plushkova actually at the US Open. She lost like eight return, eight service points the entire time. Um and today she won 96% um on her first serve. So that means she lost one first serve point the entire time. Yeah. Um only faced two break points, was never broken. And this is after hitting five double faults and only making 56% of her first serves. And um so Sviantek was a little off for sure, but you know a great serving performance from Sakari. She's really poised the entire time, just never let up on her momentum.
0: Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, back to 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 what Vanch said before. Like, um, major props to the WTA and the organizing team to um, putting this event together. There, there was no finals last year because it was, it's held in Shenzhen, I think, um, mm-hmm. supposed to, and this year, of course, like no go uh and the fact that's happening and it looks great and the graphics are amazing and you know I think it it just really shows that you know if they need to they can they can pull this together and this and I think it's amazing that we're having this this year end tournament and as much as sometimes we like to kind of like crap a bit on those like year end tournaments like it feels it feels awkward like finishing the season without one to be fair it does like it, without one it just seems like Is that it? Like, it just seems like you just kind of end it, you know, like it's, but with it, it just kind of really just sets the tone, like just really just puts a nice ending to the season. And I think it's really important to have one. I haven't watched the match yet, but I will definitely be watching, especially because we have a Canadian in the doubles. Um, Sharon Fishman has qualified for the first time. I was checking in the stats and no Canadian has ever made it into the finals um, in the women's side. Nestor of course has won it a couple. Um, in the men's side, but not in the women's side, we haven't had anyone making it this far. So it would be really exciting if uh Pitchman could could make something happen. And she is playing with a Mexican woman, so you may give her some crowd advantage. Support, yeah, yeah yeah. Crowd support, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And I um yeah. I totally agree with what you guys said about the conditions. I think honestly, every year-end finals tournament needs to look at this and think, I need to get make the conditions like this. It should be fast. It should be designed so that points can end quickly. Um. Like today in the match with uh, a and Fiontek, for the first half of the first set, I don't think there was a rally that went beyond four or five shots. Um, and part of that was because the players were getting used to the conditions and the balls were flying on them and everything was going along. But like these should not be slow courts. Um, and you know sometimes it's not going to produce tennis that takes your breath away. But you know it's the end of the season. Everyone is exhausted. Like make the courts fast. And Guadalajara has done a great job of that. It looks like.
2: Yeah, yeah, looks like it. Um, you know, I think the groups are interesting for this because you have one group with Sakari, Bedosa, Sabalenka, Sviantek, and then the other group is Kontaveit, Pushkova, Muguruza, and Krajickova. And uh, you know, I, I definitely, you know, these predictions could age really poorly because it's Thursday, and you know, by the time who knows by the time this podcast is out, you know, they could have already lost. But uh, you know, like, who do you guys see as getting out of this group and? You know, I know predicting WTA tennis has been an absolute nightmare, Uh especially at this time, especially really the last four or five years, but like, you know, who do you see as like really doing well in
1: these conditions? That's tough. I mean, I think, I feel like players like Muguruza, Krajikova, and Bedosa might be at a little bit of a disadvantage because their games are technically perfect and they do have easy power, but they don't have as much easy power as some of the other players. And so I think that if they come up against a redlining opponent, things are going to get really tough for them. I think that is true for Svjantek as well, Um, Mm. because she has a ton of power, but she needs time. And I think on a fast court, like she just can't wind up on that forehand often enough to get that crushing power that won her Roland Garros in 2020, like Sakari today, just constantly depriving her of time from the baseline. And Sviantek really couldn't unleash that forehand the way she wanted to. So I think even though, um, you know, Sabalenka and Pliskova have a tendency to, um, you know, spray errors sometimes, I think if they can focus that power, uh, the conditions are great for them. I mean, mm-hmm. Contivate as well. And she's in absolute red hot form. Um, so I think... I feel like one of those three, um, plus, uh, Sabalenka and Kontivate have the best chance.
0: Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. I was looking at the groups and for me, who comes out of like group number one is to Sabalenka and Sakari. I think you've cited pretty well. Like the reasons why, uh, Sakari has played fantastically today and she's very fit. I think she's probably going to enjoy the fact that she probably is going to be the person who's going to be able to run the most in this tournament. Yes. Um, she will definitely get tired. I think nobody's like as fit as you are. I don't think anyone can just handle like 5,000 feet. Like, you know, like it's nothing. Um, But I think she's going to come out and and off this group. I'm not totally sure yet. Um, I think Sabalenka's two comes out first uh, and Sakurai goes out second, but yeah. And group number two, I am kind of, uh, I don't think Khrushikova is going to make an impression in this tournament sadly because I think it's just too gassed from the season. Um played Billie Jean king cup um cup maybe last week, I think, and she was already gassed then cannot even imagine now um high altitude i don 't think she 's gonna have anything left to to give, just kind of grabbing her appearance fee and leaving um and i I'm, I'm, i can't really pick between Muguruza, Pliskova, and Kanta, right i think it it's gonna be a battle between those those three
3: okay.
0: maybe for for momentum, definitely Kuntavite looks red hot and ready to take it over. But I guess Muguruza and Pliskova have more experience. Uh, I can't recall if Plishkova or Muguruza have already won, won this tournament before. But um,
2: they've made the finals before. Yeah, right. they, haven't, they haven't won it. They haven't won. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know. Yeah, Plishkova already has a little bit of an edge, but she, she beat Muguruza yesterday.
0: Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's gonna. Those are,
2: all, those are all good picks. For me, it's like, you know, I I would like Sabalenka in these conditions a lot. She's won Madrid this year, which is on a higher altitude. And Mm. obviously, we know she can have patches of play where she's just absolutely untouchable. And then she can also have patches where she makes a lot of errors in bunches. And it's going to be about, you know, how maximizing those good parts and minimizing the bad parts. And it's not always her strength in the big matches and majors like we've seen um, the past few majors. But I think, you know, in a tournament like this, she's... She's got the goods. It's just, uh, you know, she did have COVID. So I'm concerned maybe she's un- undercooked in mm-hmm. terms of match play. And, um, you know, Bedosa, it's interesting. I haven't seen, we haven't seen her play since Indian Wells, but she's obviously in form and so is Contivate in the other group. But I think I, I like Sakari in the first group and I like, you know, I, I I would say Sabalenka normally, but I just don't know where her fitness and where her uh, where she's at right now. And I think Bedosa has a, will have a little bit of the crowd support and she's got, little bit more margin in her game so i'll, I'll pick against uh and, and then she's beaten shuantek before this year as well on hard court so i'll, I'll pick Bedosa to get out of the group i'll say Sakuri and Bedosa, mm-hmm. okay and then in the other group uh, i'll say contavid and push okay
1: yeah and um and i also want to put Sakuri's name up with um the three i mentioned at the beginning i think um you guys made some great points about the altitude to give a perspective of how high this is this is basically twice as high as madrid um Madrid is at about twenty six hundred feet. This is about fifty two hundred, and that is not nothing. That makes a big difference in how the ball sails through the air. Uh, it's going to be harder to keep it down, and also the air the air is thin up there. It's harder to breathe. Um, so fitness is going to be more of a factor in this tournament than it will be in most in most tournaments. Like a lot of the time, fitness does not come into play if you have short matches or a match that's short enough that players are so fit, like, they don't get tired. I think up here that's not going to be the case. The three-set battles are going to be exhausting. And so Sakari is probably going to be the last one to gas out in that respect. And I think Mm -hmm. with Sabalenka having had COVID, if there are any, you know, lingering effects from that, that could be real trouble. Um, I mean, I think being short of breath already and having to deal with thinner air is not going to be a recipe for success. So um, it'll be... That'll be a thing to track for sure.
2: Yeah. For sure, yeah. Um, and I do think, you know, if I'll just predict ahead, I think you know, Sakurii and so if I say Sakurii finishes one and Bedosa two and Contivate one and Pushkova two, then you know it would be Sakurii Pushkova in the semis and Bedosa Contivate. I could see, you know, I could actually see Contivate winning this thing. Yeah, because, I, I was um, going
1: to say
0: maybe a Sakurii Contivate final.
2: Yeah, that that's would be what
0: crushing I, I, for for yeah. Sakurii, honestly. <laughs> So many top losses I against in matches that she should have won
2: because Sakuragi has made a lot of great runs. She just she doesn't win titles, and yep. she's only won one title in her whole career. And you know, you know, she might turn that matchup around against contivate They played earlier this year, and Contubate won. won. Uh, mm-hmm. contivate's also been in Vidosa this year, so mm-hmm. I think you know after the U.S. Open. So I do really like her chances the way she's playing right now. I think, I think she could win this thing. Yeah. So
1: I have. Yeah. That. I, I I agree, and um yeah something david kane said on twitter was um sakura's issue was not producing god mode performances it's kind of stringing them together yeah. and you can think back this year she has a lot of baggage like you were saying like at roland garros um you know she de- she demolished Sviantek um in a, a pretty big upset and then in the semis she had an absolute heck of a match against Krajikova, where um like they played one of the best sets of the year in the decider. um Soccery had a couple of match points i think um mm-hmm. or um and she she served for it at least she was two points away maybe had a match point um and ended up losing that nine seven in the third um yeah and like you were saying once like she plays well but she doesn't win the big titles yet um so i think that. i be think miami she served for the track. match
2: i think she served for the match against Andresio and dresskill yeah. and yeah yeah i think yeah so so that sounds right you're right it's a lot of baggage yeah so.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's, I'm thinking back on her year now. Like, she's played a lot of crazy matches because she had that rematch with Andrescu at the US Open that was like, that was like three and a half hours, right? It was a great match. And it ended up, yeah, I I wasn't able to see it because it was so late, but it ended with Andrescu being totally shattered physically. Um, Yeah, yeah, Sakurai has improved. She's come a long way this year.
2: She's so fit physically. It's, yeah, it's insane. She can, she looks really strong yeah Um, and and that's just such a weapon
1: to have like knowing that your opponent is going to be the first one to get tired so if you can play well enough to just get them into a dogfight like you have that advantage
2: for sure yeah um i also want to touch a little bit on uh, another event that's taking place that didn't happen in 2020 as well which is the next gen finals which is the top eight players Mm. 21 and under and they're playing in milan uh there's no doubles alley so it's it's an interesting experience to do it Uh, yeah and the camera angle is a little bit funkier it's a little bit higher and it's uh but uh it's it's so far i think it's been the, the quality of tennis hasn't been really been the problem i think you know a lot of it is just doubt, doubts on you know the the new things that they try to implement every year and they try to trial these things at, at this event because it is an exhibition uh, it does count for the players in terms of match events and losses but they don't get any ranking points from it and no prize money they do get appearance fees. But it's I think interesting. They get prize to money
0: too. They get prize money for match wins, or well, they
2: get they get prize money for matches they play. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. They get prize money, but they don't get ranking points. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see what all they're trialing this year. So obviously, they always had that you know fast four format, uh, you know first to four games. It's best of five sets, sets in quotes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like you know tiebreaker at three all to so seven, and you have like video review, you have electronic line calling, you have. The twenty-five second shot clock. You have, you know, just fans can move all around at any point. You
0: have coaching as well. I think it's well. coaching.
2: Yeah, they have um, courtside coaching. and You have a shorter warm up, which is a minute. Yeah. Uh, so it's you know players come in and there's less faffing around before and after and just one minute warm up and off you go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you got you know yeah limited medical timeouts, max three minutes of, but ba- oh yeah, three minute bathroom break, two minutes extra if you're changing
1: clothes they can call Sitsipas that the World Tour Finals Now,
2: yeah, that was a, basically a Tsitsipas rule right there. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I um, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this fast four format, and I feel like the fact that it's best of five is kind of distracting people a lot from the short sets because they recently had a match with, I forgot who played, but it was like two hours and thirty four yeah, minutes. Yeah, it, uh, it, uh, uh, it was the, uh, the uh, longest history game. of the tournament. Yeah, like
2: you, yeah, you know, yeah, that is not long at all. It's um, not you know, for five sets that went yeah, all the way to like the you,
1: wire. you can you can easily play a normal best of three set match that's longer than this. Um, yeah, it makes me a bit sad for these players because I think if anyone thinks they're getting best of five set match practice, they're not. You know, yeah. this is not a physical test. It's probably less physically taxing than a normal tournament would be. Um so that annoys me. But I think um it has been enjoyable to follow, and something yeah. that I've taken away from it is that Alcaraz is so much more polished. Than these guys yeah, he some, like he's yeah. he's getting to play players who don't have insanely good yeah. serves you know their it, serves it's are the, comparable to his yeah. and everything else he does is just so much better
0: it reminds me a bit of when tizzy pass was playing this tournament i was like there, there's no way he's not gonna win this like he he, he beats he beat he i think in the in the final and Demonor is definitely yeah. the truthful runner-up of this tournament like I, I, when i saw it i was like yeah maybe Demonor can, can pull this off the form is different So, you know, there's a chance he finished runner-up, I think, like, twice in a row, which is Yeah, and Senna demolished him the the next
1: year as well, which felt like man versus boy too.
0: Exactly. Uh, And, you know, I think the one thing that I found about this is that, like, tennis, like, regular sets and things like that, they have this this quality, which is, for me, is that I can follow it without necessarily be watching it. So I can kind of, like, do my own thing. Like, sometimes I can catch a point here and there. Like, sometimes I stop when there's, like, a, a... like a, like a moment of, uh, you know, pressure, like when it's like 4-3 and it's like a deuce and it's like, oh, I can I have to watch this. Like, this is important. At this tournament, like, I look away and when I realize there's already two sides to love up and I was like, wait, what just yeah, happened? Yeah. You you cannot take your, the take sense your of urgency off of the team. is
2: ridiculous yeah. because, yeah. you know, you, maximum you're playing seven points in a game because yeah. it's, you know, no deciding yeah. point of deuce and oh, it yeah, kind of there, just there's takes there's away a little
1: bit. Yeah. The yeah, no, yeah, there's I mean, no ad, then, yeah yeah the, yeah that no ad is a big thing that shortens it, it as well yeah. and and the thing with the tie breaks playing them like it's four games to win a set but you play the tie break at three all which is not yeah. how it works normally yeah. like like you have to get to six and then you play the tie break so you win with seven games it just doesn't make any sense to me and people can say like you know it's a fun experimentation and everything um you know i, like, I hope it stays that way because i wouldn't things,
2: want but... that deciding you know i wouldn't want to format like this deciding big matches and deciding yeah. results yeah, when. No. No, what, no, I, yeah. what
0: i what i think is interesting and, and if there is any place to apply those it would be like 250s because they're they're where um not not this format but i think with the format that i think is interesting is uh match tiebreakers i think they kind of keep keep the truthfulness of uh the score um without taxing the players so much physically mm-hmm. with like, like a final point, set tiebreaker like yeah, percent, the, the, yeah the, 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 the super tiebreak break in the in the yeah. like yeah. they in the doing doubles cup. yeah like yeah you,
1: you know, yeah I could, um yeah, if I could design a scoring system for this event, it would be best of five normal sets, but instead of a fifth set, you play a ten point tiebreak. Um, and that way you get most of a five set match, but it's still not as taxing.
0: Yeah, and yeah. I would say that for for the two fifties, mostly because well, this is where um uh, most of the lower ranked players are going to be playing in, and that's where they can get the most money. And you know that they're going to be playing this like all year long match on match on match and i think it, it would be interesting if they got to do that and the challenger tour as well and not yeah. get injury injured as much as they do i think it would you'd probably like cut off on a lot of like fatigue and injury from the players if they, yeah, they I, had the know, opportunity to do that
2: trial it at the itf and challenger tour yeah. and just kind yeah, of see how it for is sure. for the players coming up
0: i think the itf they already do this as like the fifteen thousand events the the some of the uh or maybe just the juniors. I don't know, but like um, yeah,
2: yeah, I don't see it yet in the like the 15s and the 25s for yeah. ITFs like this. But, play but definitely
0: challengers are a place where they can they can try to yeah. and, and to be
2: fair, I'm that. not a fan of it in doubles as well. You know, I just you know it's just that we can accept that more than you know you can in singles since yeah. that's always at the forefront. But
1: yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think I've always thought that tennis's biggest strength is its scoring system, and people who are promoting no ad. I don't. I can't take seriously an argument that says like, you know, it's going to bring more tension into this. It's like, is there not enough tension for you already? Like tennis, yeah. tennis is all tension. Like it's yeah. like, is a break point or a deuce point? Not enough. Like I, I don't see it at all. And I think yeah. those multi deuce games are amazing. Um, So like, if, if you want things to move, faster and you want less tennis then i i guess it makes sense but i don't want those things i don't think a lot of hardcore fans want those things so i think it's a chance
2: you might be able to bring in more basketball fans or more fans with shorter attention spans but i don't really see that as a problem you know i don't think tennis needs shorter matches i think it's i think the greatest matches in history have been like you know the best the five set epics Mm. and the three set epics i think what it what tennis needs is just maybe more variations in terms of the playing styles and the creativity, because if that's the case and people love it, you know, they wouldn't want them want the match to finish. So I think it's, I think it's not so much the length of time because you do see in other sports, you know, NFL games, that last three hours, they last longer and there's delays all the time, you know, from that standpoint, we don't have nearly the same amount of delays and it's usually pretty fast paced. We have the 90 second changeovers, but it's not really like a, yeah, yeah. exactly.
0: The only reason why I would defend not necessarily shorter matches, but well, shorter in a way is like the, the tiebreakers is really just like for, um player integrity like physical integrity because right it definitely is something that we talked about before and it, it's a compromise that i would be willing to make because it's already a format that is true to the scoring system you still have to win by two it's a tiebreaker um it's already implemented in several like tournaments uh, at higher level and i think it would be you'd still keep like the tension between like first and second set definitely the third set would just kind of lose the, a little bit of its uh momentum in the in the best of three if you're going like for for 250s but i probably wouldn't touch uh masters 1000 and grand slams are definitely their own talk so each one of them like do it differently so i don't even know like where would this one go so. yeah I, yeah it's mean,
2: a good I, point about the physically because i think you know the, i think earlier this year we had those tournaments before the australian open like just a week before and i remember those those two wta events that did like the 10 point tie break in lieu of the third set and that yeah. was the one where I think Annette Contevade and I want to say Ann Lee, like they didn't play a final because it was the next, it was just the day before the tournament was about to start. So they have, they permanently have like that in their record books. Like both of them got to the final, but it was all just 10 point tiebreaks the whole way through. Yeah. I think even like Serena played like a 10 point tiebreaker against Danielle Collins instead of a third set. Mm-hmm. So it's, like,
1: yeah. I, I want to say one more thing on kind of marketing the sport to fans. And I think, the conversation is way too caught up in how long is it taking and less caught up in do people enjoy watching players hit a ball back and forth because that is the part of tennis that is not going to change right if you like watching players hit a ball back and forth you're going to be willing to do it like in your free time and so i think whether you're doing it for two hours or two and a half hours is really not going to make a difference like i think if people think the scoring system is hard to understand then get graphics up there on the screen explaining it to them But I don't understand the kind of obsession with changing all these little minute parts of the scoring system. Like taking away no ad is not going to do anything. It's going to make parts of parts of it less exciting. Uh, It's going to make good matches go on for less time. Um, And yeah, like the scoring system is not the thing that needs to change. Like if people who like tennis really like tennis. And so the issue was not, reaching enough people so we need to do a better job of reaching people and not changing the products we already have i don't think the product is the issue at all
2: yeah exactly and also you know the even if the matches do go on a little bit longer and you know you do have that same standard format you are gonna you are gonna give fans like a longer window to tune in and Mm. so they might be able to catch the really good parts whereas in this format you, you can't really do that i feel like it's it's over so quickly uh it's you just still do maybe get the drama in terms of like the deciding points and stuff like that, but it's you don't really have that long of a window to tune in if you miss anything because it's yeah, it's gone.
1: Like yeah. It's, I, I mean, I think no ad what that does is like a lot of the time a multi deuce game is kind of taking a moment when both players are playing well and it's prolonging it, right? But if you replace like the possibility for an endless game with one point to decide it, that could end that simultaneous good play. Like, you know, maybe in the next game, one of them goes off the boil. And like if um, like in this Paris final, if um, if one point decides that the last game of that second set instead of, you know, like eight deuces, maybe they sit down and they start the third set and one of them is not playing well anymore. Um, and you miss that stretch of like 15, 20 points when they're both at their best. Um, I think that would be a real loss.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just to go off of that, you know, Carlos Alcaraz is like the big alpha of this tournament. There's no question about it. And, you know, you have two groups, group A and group B, and you have Alcaraz, you have Nakashima, you have Rune, you have Sarundolo. Um, You know, Sarundalo has basically made a lot of his points from challengers and clay court, uh, clay court events. He did win a clay court 250 out of nowhere qualifying, but he's, uh, you know, he's definitely like more of an outsider in this tournament. He stands so far behind the baseline. He's, he's barely has any indoor experience. And then the next group, you have Sebastian Corda, who's the best of that group. And you have like Sebastian bias from Argentina. For those who don't know bias, he's like another really big clay quarter, uh, five foot seven. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of comparisons with him and like Diego Schwartzman. He plays a little bit different than Schwartzman. Mm-hmm. He's, he likes to step in, dictate more with the forehand. And he has a little bit more juice on his, on that ground stroke. His backhand isn't quite as good as Schwartzman, but he, and I think his serve is also slightly less of a liability than it is for Diego, but Diego returns better. He's got a it better. It's too early to tell right now because Baez is still at the very early parts of his career, but he's right around 111 in the world. And we could see a breakthrough from him next year, I think, especially on clay courts. And then you have Lorenzo Mussetti, who's not been in great form since the French Open, since he took those two sets off Novak. And then you have Hugo Gaston, Hugo, Mr. I only play well in Paris with crowds, Gaston. So <laughs> So it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because we have already had a lot of matches, but I guess the semis are Alcaraz. Uh, Alcaraz is playing against Baez and Nakashima is playing against Corda. So you kind of have the American battle with Corda and Nakashima and then probably the winner will face Alcaraz. Yeah. So it should be exciting. I guess yeah, it would be Alcaraz and Corda as the favorites. Yeah.
0: For our intents and purposes, I guess like looking at this tournament for a way to just kind of like have fun and not look too much into it. I think you can just kind of, just watch people play tennis and you know that's it like it's probably the one yeah. tournament of the year that you can just kind of be like just live in the moment of it like there's nothing much like to to read into it and you know I, that's fine you know like i think it's it's yeah. it's interesting it's good it's good to see more of alcaraz They he's playing extremely well played probably one of the best points of the year against Nakashima, fantastic defense. Yeah, last like so,
2: yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and so, and going off of that, I think, you know, it does give a big boost to whoever wins it because I think, you know, oftentimes with the year-end events, I try not to put, not put to put too much uh, weight into the results because yeah. in a long year, they're cooked, and we don't know yeah. if it really means that much for Australia. Let's be yeah, honest. for sure. It's no, like, no, absolutely. But at the same time, I think, you know, the previous history of this event has been good with those three winners, with Chung and Tsitsipas and Center, They've all gone the following year. Except for Sinner, but they've all gone the following year and made the Australian Open semis the next year and then gone on to have a really good year, either qualified for the World Tour Finals yeah. or even won it. So yeah. I think it could be a big boost for Alcaraz yeah. because I think he really is going to be a top 10 player next year. Mm-hmm. I think he'll be so where Sinner yeah. is right now, yeah. uh, even higher probably. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree.
1: And I was just thinking what I wouldn't give to see a healthy Hyun Chong come back and play Alcaraz. Um, yeah. I feel like uh, those two yeah. should be able to have like an epic rivalry in center as well, but yeah. some people just don't get the luck with the injuries.
0: Yeah, exactly, and that's yeah. that's really sad. But yeah, I guess uh, we covered pretty much everything. Even the neat, the it's not need to, but forget the whoever's the sponsor for the the next gen finals. Um, at any rate, uh, thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, it was a blast. Like, hopefully, we covered everything. We'll be back next week maybe we'll see yeah
1: we'll, <laughs> uh, we'll definitely go over some, the year-end yeah. finals at some
0: point yeah 100% we're definitely going to be covering that so uh there's tons of more podcasts coming uh before the end of uh, the year not the season but uh yeah in any, in any case uh thanks Owen for being here again thanks Funch, and uh yeah let's try to get the pod together more often <laughs> yeah nice. it's been
2: it's been fun yeah I enjoy chatting so
0: yeah again